you know, being in real estate, I understood a lot about real estate, but kind of the collateral side of what title insurance is and what position notes are in and all this other stuff is something that took me a while to learn. And I'm a learn by doing person. So I could have read it 10 times, but until I actually started physically doing it. But the interesting thing is on most non-performing loans, it all comes down to spending or taking the time to be proactive. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing into commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Today's episode is Chris Seveny. Seveny, uh, you know, you're you obviously already seeing this, seeing how you spell his name. I think it's a pretty cool and clever way in which he used his, his 7E investments. But we talk about note buying. Um, why I love note buying is it's one of those things where you can be very passive as far as like you're not swinging the hammer and obviously he is is uh, managing many hundreds of fun or hundreds of notes now and so he's active in the note buying space but what happens is you can oftentimes own these notes and then they give you the true definition of mailbox money so this is a very very exciting episode we dive into how he's lost some money on some notes, some things that went wrong we dive into some stories at the end actually some very interesting stories how people can sometimes scam either through the foreclosure process, note buying and other things like that. The the former football player um, or professional athlete and how he was kind of scamming that. And so that's towards the end of the episode. So make sure you catch out for that one. But I also like some of the the nitty gritty details of how he works through these, get them reperforming and and then be able to sell them off and and make his value add is oftentimes working with people and getting these things um, on a better trajectory once something bad has happened. So excited for this episode. Let's jump right in with Chris Seveny. Chris Seveny, I'm excited for this episode. Part of it is because of what you do is a really, really fascinating world for me. And it is, I think we'll get into more technical details of your note buying, um, but you, you also have a very interesting past as far as that you're like Uber developer, you know, doing I think it's in billions or, you know, into the billions of dollars of, of construction. So I'd like you to take a few minutes to kind of a little bit unpack the bigger story of, of who is Chris. Um, and then I, I think we'll, you know, lead into some distressed note buying and, and how that is very applicable to today. Yeah. So I'll start with where I'm at today and I'll work backwards because I think that can kind of tell a little bit of the story which, uh, you know, today I left my full-time job last year to start a real estate investment company focused on distressed mortgage notes. And we are raising uh, $75 million within that fund. Uh, And it's something that I've always wanted to do. Um, You know, I've always had that entrepreneur passion of to have my own business. Now let's rewind it from 26 years ago. Um, This is how long it took me to get to this point. And after graduating college, I are working with a commercial general contractor up in Boston, with the time was actually not a huge outfit who was, you know, during that time has grown significantly. 
but I always loved real estate and working for the general contractor um, during that period of time, doing project management, uh, learned a lot of uh, management skills, how to interact with people, um, built some really cool, awesome projects that I worked on, a lot of residential, commercial, um, when we say residential, you know, multifamily or condos, you know, never really did much single family until later on in my career, but, you know, spent 15 years working for that general contractor. And eventually, you know, when you work that long for one company, uh, you know, you sometimes can get burnt out. You know, you ask somebody today, you know, hey, you work 15 years for a company and people probably look at you a little funny um, because most people today, you know, last three to five years. I made the switch um, at that point in time for what people call going to the dark side, um, which was to go work for a real estate developer. Um, you know, if you're on the GC side, going to the developer, that's a dark side because um, in those worlds, the developer is the one, you know, always sitting in a luxury box or, you know, where the, on the construction side, you're sitting up in the nosebleeds if you go into a game. But really, that changed my life. And it changed it because when you're working for a general contractor, you're, you have a different mindset of getting a project completed. And when you work for a developer, your risk analysis completely changes because general contractors make like 3% fees on you know, large scale, you know, commercial $100 million projects. Developers make like 20%. And they are all about risk aversion and entrepreneurship. And make a long story short, my boss at the time said, what's your personal portfolio? And I had nothing in my portfolio. Uh, so we built our, my wife and I built our primary residence, had equity from that, got some rentals. Um, fast forward to five years ago, my wife, um, actually a little longer than that, mentioned um, it's too much trying to do rentals or rehabs on properties in the Washington, D.C. area because we have young kids. And you know, we were hands-on. We actually didn't do the labor, but we managed it and would be there every day. So I actually got a little ticked off when I found out about this, which is uh, what a mortgage note is in mortgage note investing. I mean, I knew what a mortgage note was because I had a mortgage on my house, but I didn't realize that these things were sold to investors. And probably a lot of people listening today don't realize it. Most people think of mortgage note investing as private lending where, you know, Jake, you're going to, you know, flip a property. Hey, I'll give you a hundred thousand to go flip that property. People don't realize that you can you know, have a loan that's 10 years old, the borrower's not performing and haven't paid for a few years and buy that loan at 50 cents on the dollar. So I found out about that. I loved it because I wasn't competing against local investors. You had time to bid on assets and it fit me in my lifestyle perfectly. And that's one thing I always tell people when you're never going to go invest in anything, you know, you don't need to copy somebody and do what other people do. You need to do what fits you and your lifestyle. So I started that in, you know, 2017 ish, and it was addictive. Um, started with my own money. Um, I was doing really well at it because I have, you know, a management and finance background and started just growing the business over the last five years to do several smaller syndications, which um, we can get into. But when I started those, I made sure they were small in nature, you know, a million, a few million bucks at a time. And I played with the returns. And what I mean by that is I provided different Op, different types of returns in each different fund to see what works and what doesn't work. You know, so it wasn't a $50 million fund that all of a sudden I realized I was giving too much money away um, or I, you know, the investors wasn't working because I wasn't raising the money, you know, tried different aspects to it. And that's what's got me to where I am today. Sorry, I took so long saying that. Um, but, uh, you know, we've bought and sold over 500 notes and they're, you know, rocking and rolling. And I have a team of, uh, eight awesome staff members as well, helping me run my business. Well, no, I think that is an awesome uh, introduction. And, uh, you know, just hearing that, and, and I'm excited because now we get to, you know, kind of dive into some even uh, more detail. Uh, I actually really like the, the, the going to the dark side, the, the Darth Vader of, of the, the developers, you know, world, but you know, that is, Kind of true, um, you know. But I also know some very, very successful contractors uh, that are uh, sitting next to them in that booth as well. So, yeah, you you talked about how this kind of fit your lifestyle, and and I'd like to dive into that a little bit before we actually get into and unpack like what is the note buying because I think that's such a big thing. You know, the the podcast is passive wealth principles. Is I think there's so many people that 
think they're going to get into real estate and, you know, it is, you know, and to your point earlier, you're flipping houses or fixing them up or doing rehabs or remodels. Like there's nothing passive about owning the real estate. I mean, you know, if you're the LP, maybe there is, but when you're the owner, when they're, you're the GP, you're the sponsor, you think it's an active thing. So tell me about that, how your lifestyle and how this kind of as a passive or investor or as a note investor fit your lifestyle and how you kind of discovered that. Yeah. So like you mentioned, even if you have a property that you own and have a property manager, it's still not passive. You know, you get a call on a Sunday of, oh, this is broken. Do you want to fade a new water heater? Do you want to get it fixed? And it's always at the worst opportune time um, that it happens. And, you know, with mortgage notes, what kind of interested me was that ability to either, whether it be active or some passivity within it, especially like you mentioned, a fund structure with a limited partnership. Um, you know, I'm a limited partner in several opportunities, um, you know, as well that we, um, that I've invested in, but it's, um, you know, always something is somebody with a, a limited, you know, being on the limited side or looking at passive, making sure you're comfortable with it. Um, but let me also talk about a little bit on the active side, because, you know, once you go passive, you usually don't go back to active, but a lot of people start being active when they truly should have been passive from the beginning. And where I see a lot of people that fit that mold are people who, you know, hey, I want to invest twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars, or seventy-five, or even a hundred thousand dollars. You know, when you have funds like that, and look at the amount of time you're going to have to take and spend to manage that asset, is it worth it? Because one thing I've learned as I've gotten older is the one thing that you cannot control or um, you can't add or gain is time. You know, time is, you know, it's the one thing that constantly goes is goes against you and you can't add to it. And, you know, everything else in life, you basically can, except for time. How did you discover your first note? So I'd love to like to get into this and let's, let's get into the kind of the nitty gritty. Like, how did you discover the first one? And then like, what is that process that you're now, let's just start on there and then we can get into the more technical and what you're doing now. Yeah. So first note, uh, like anybody who um, gets into something new, there's always that analysis paralysis that people go through. I spent six months researching, studying YouTube videos, um, you know, everything possible to convince myself essentially that I wasn't ready. And, you know, you, people got to go by the mindset of, you know, kind of the 80-20 um, or 90-10. You know, it takes, you know, Last 10% of your effort to get to 100% takes 90% of the actual effort to get there. So I finally got the, um, I'm going to use a, not a nice word there, um, but got the uh, strong enough personally to be like, okay, I can do this. And, you know, we were, I was getting lists of assets and I was bidding them, but, you know, it's almost like bidding on a house at auction. I was throwing numbers out there that there was not a snowball's chance that you were ever going to get win it. And then finally, I'm like, okay, I'm done with this. And kind of just got that emotion of, I'm going to go buy some loans. And the first loans I bought, I actually bought four loans right off the bat um, after that six months. And I'm the type of person who uh, likes to try different things. So the loans I actually bought, I bought one that was non-performing, one that was performing and paying, another one, that were, two that were performing, excuse me, and one that was in bankruptcy. And one thing I just want to mention is we dive deeper when people think about what a non-performing loan, what most people, if you ask somebody off the street, what they would think of and what happens versus what the reality is, is very interesting because, you know, most people think I miss a mortgage payment and they're going to come lock me out of my house and I'm going to get thrown out. You know, the average delinquency on our portfolio on loans that are behind is about four years, meaning people haven't made a payment in four years or they're four years behind. So this isn't a 30 or 60 day, someone behind. These are loans that are years behind. So just wanted to give some insight to people as we kind of dive a little deeper into the definition of a non-performing loan. Typically it's anything over 120 days, but most of the stuff we see is literally years behind. That's awesome. So yeah, I mean, so you're, you're bidding on the tape, you know, these pools of loans, individual loans. And so someone else and to kind of, you know, uh, to, to your point is a lot of people don't understand or don't know about this is so how, how these things get 
traded and sold. And so, I mean, you probably have higher, a uh, lot higher levels of knowledge as of, of I do, but I'll kind of, kind of give it the lay term is like, so somebody, a bigger fish, a private equity group or a bigger syndication is going to go buy $50 million, $20 million kind of tapes, pools of loans. Then they're going to parse them out into smaller loans. Oftentimes they cherry pick out the ones that they want. And so they may take uh, a $20 million you know, bucket, uh, a group of, of loans, and then they're going to parse them out to, you know, five, five million dollars loans. So they can make a spread on that. They cherry pick and take some of those out. And then they sell those off to five million dollar guys, you know, break those down and might then sell the individual loans to Chris, Jake, you know, that's got, you know, wants to buy a hundred thousand dollar mortgage and will put in a, a bid for 50 cents on the dollar. I'll buy that $100,000 mortgage for $50,000. And then if the bid hits or you're high bidder, then they transact and now you're the note holder. And so, and I'm assuming that's kind of how that went down for you is you went out and bought four, maybe you bought a little package of them. But so like now talk me through your like non-performer, hey, they're not paying, performing. Then there's the category of, Reperformers, you know, being crypto, like maybe give me all like the kind of the, the lay of the land of all the types of loans that exist out there. And then what did you do with your first four, the, the non-performer, the performing and the BK ones? Yeah, great question. So actually you hit the nail on the head of explaining how it works. One thing I'll just add and people will ask, well, why do they tranche, break them off and want to sell them? It might be states they don't want to deal with, but also remember this with mortgages, it costs the same amount of money to get an attorney involved on a $10,000 loan as a $5 million mortgage if you're going down that foreclosure path. Foreclosure costs is foreclosure costs. Um, it's not like a house where a 1,000 square foot roof is going to be less than a 10,000 square foot roof. Here, it's you know, a piece of document that you're you know, looking to uh, you know, foreclose upon. So it do- the value does not matter. So that's why some of these funds that are larger will keep the higher price assets because they have certain staff that can handle it and they don't want to deal with some of these smaller loans that you know make their way down. So yeah, you hit you know the, the types of loans, the non-performing loans, performing in bankruptcy. Some people use the term sub-performing. And to me, kind of, I sometimes joke about that category because I, I'll use the phrase, you know, you're, you're either dead or alive. I mean, a loan's either performing or not performing. There's, you know, subperforming is, oh, I'm making a payment one every three months. Well, to me, that's non-performing. You know, are you making your payment every month or are you not? But the loans we bought, the, so it was a small pool, like you mentioned, it was four loans. The education really for me on those was on, you know, of course, the non-performing and the bankruptcy loan because, you know, being in real estate, I understood a lot about real estate, but kind of the collateral side of what title insurance is and what position notes are in and all this other stuff is something that took me a while to, to learn. And I'm a learn by doing person. So I could have read it 10 times, but until I actually started physically doing it. Um, but the interesting thing is on most non-performing loans, it all comes down to, uh, you know, spending or taking the time to be proactive uh, because a lot of times these loans just sit in a file and nobody's even calling the borrower or nothing's happening. And for us, if it's non-performing, we have a servicing company who does all the reach out for us. If they're in a lot of times, they're not successful because if you see a caller come calling you on your phone, you know, and it's a number you don't know, what do you do? Boom. Don't take it. You get a letter in the mail from somebody who you don't know it is or so forth. What do you do? Throw it in recycling. So it's typically not until you get an attorney involved and all of a sudden you get a letter that says from the law offices of, then that's like, oh, probably should open this. Um, and that's usually 90% of the time where we get the borrower to start communicating with us, basically explain to them, hey, you're behind on your mortgage. Do you want to keep the house or not? And then they realize, oh, I have to start paying again because I haven't paid in four years. So I thought I could just live in the house for free. You'd be surprised how many people out of sight, out of mind, think that because they haven't paid for several years that they get a house for free. So, you know, that actually is what happened in this process um, on this w- one loan. And then on the one in bankruptcy, um, bankruptcy is really interesting without deep diving too much, but bankruptcy is like a structured, like a structured refinance in the sense of they take all your debt, 
package it all together and put you on a payment plan. Um, and a lot of times they'll actually garnish the wages from the person's work to pay back who they owe the money. And with a mortgage, you're what's called a secured lender. So you're guaranteed, basically guaranteed to get paid when they get money. But a lot of times if you have credit card debt, they may only get 10 cents on a dollar or whatnot because they're not secured. Um, so that was my first kind of rodeo into it. And the th biggest lessons learned from buying those assets were vendors you deal with and quality of vendors. You know, I look at, always looked at attorneys as somebody, you know, basically extremely intelligent, organized, sophisticated, high praise. And that's typically the case, but a lot of attorneys are not organized. And you'll reach out to them and say, hey, what's going on with this? What's going on with this? They're behind on communicating with you. They take a long time to get back to you. You want something last week, two weeks later, you don't have it from them. And it's like, you get frustrated because you think that you know, a lot of times, okay, I'm dealing with somebody who I'm paying a lot of money, you know, 100 plus $200 an hour for, you know, I think they would be on top of these things. Well, that was probably the biggest lesson I had stepping back was like, whoa, this is kind of like managing contractors when I was doing project management. You know, you got to stay on top of people. It doesn't matter, you know, if they had Esquire behind their name or any license, title, engineer, um, PE, whatever it was, everybody needs managing. That is uh, a great point. You know, uh, I, I don't know that I've had other people bring that up before, but it, it's very much so. And actually there's um, Peter Lencioni wrote uh, a book called The Six Areas of Working Genius. And so part of it is that ever there are six areas in business and kind of organizations um, and people are genius in two and competent in two. And then they kind of are not good or it sucks the energy out of them. And entrepreneurs, oftentimes when they get burned out is because they're spending too much time in the areas that suck the energy or that they're not good at. And so really what it is, that's a human condition. There's certain things that you're really good at. I bet you, Chris, you're amazing at some things. And I know this, you know, maybe I, I, we haven't met in person. So I was like, maybe you are the second coming and you are perfect in all aspects. Um, but I'll go get my not, wife and she can clearly confirm that is not the case. So, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was like, uh, exactly same thing, my wife. And I tell her that I was like, I know this is going to come as a shock that I am not perfect. I make mistakes and actually a lot of them. Um, and so then it just comes into, it's like judging it, a, a fish on its ability to climb a tree. Sometimes some of those attorneys are really good. And I've actually seen this. And the first time I realized it was there was like doctors. My cousin lived with me when I was down in Arizona and she was going to med school. And there's some brilliant medical professionals and doctors and stuff like that. But I think they had a hard time walking and chewing bubble gum. But like they were amazing at this one thing. And I was like, that's the reality is you want to find people that are amazing at the one thing that you need them to do. Not the most average-ish person that can do this and dunk a basketball and be a great public speaker and do this. And it'd be like, no, I just have a need of this. So how do you manage that and find those things? And so that kind of pull into my next question is you have at least a really good team put together. So how have you started putting together in those key components of that team? Because I think this is also another one of those big passive wealth or passive principles that everyone should know is, dude, you don't have to be the one that does everything. Yeah, exactly. You do not. And I was the person who, I had trust issues and I ran a lot of my first funds all by myself. And, you know, it was hard for me originally to bring people on and what people need to realize and whether you're doing due diligence on a company or participating in any way shape or form or working for a company is nobody is perfect at any company everybody has strengths everybody has their weaknesses and when we were building the team because mortgage notes is not something where it's not like a real estate agent where you can just go pick somebody up off the street who's been doing it for 10 years you know, there's limited supply in mortgage notes um, for people who do this uh, because not a lot of people know about it. And when we were putting our team together, um, first it was myself and then my partner, Lauren, 
Uh, and we are pretty much the exact opposites. She is a business sales investor relations. She loves talking to people. I want to use the term hate talking to people, but I'm not like the outgoing person that can go sell myself for my fund. That's what she loves. And she had her own note portfolio, but that's not, she doesn't like spreadsheets. You know, salespeople typically don't. So we have basically, you know, you look at the road, I'm on my side, she's on her side. None of, neither one of us want to go across that line. And when we were putting the team together, we were very strategic and we follow um, EOS. Um, if people are familiar with, you know, EOS, Gino Wickman, the book Traction, and really not organization chart, but accountability charts of what do you need and who do you, you know, finding the right person for that right seat on the bus. And, you know, we took, for example, our investor relations team, we did take somebody who had been seven years with a multifamily developer um, dealing with investors. Perfect fit. Um, took a, a woman who had no note experience. She worked in corporate for Target on their operations side of things, who from operations and systems was, I mean, unbelievable. And you can only imagine the size of Target, how they must structure and streamline everything. So this woman is phenomenal in regards to, you know, creating uh, like Visio graphs and how like uh, SOPs and everything. And then back to the um, asset management side, you know, we brought in people who have dealt and managed assets before and kind of, you know, embodied that philosophy of putting people accountable and being able to support them, but also holding people responsible for things. And you'll find that when nobody's responsible, nothing ever gets done and it's a bad culture. And when everybody's responsible, the positivity in the culture changes significantly because everyone's working towards the same goal and passion of the company, but have their individual roles. That's something I always want people, you know, help people understand, um, you know, when you're looking at things to, you know, peel back uh, underneath the hood of a little bit to see how it's operated. Yeah, I think that was one of the big things, the AHA, the EOS and Gina Rick, Wickman and Rocket Fuel. I think somebody recommended that book. I read through it and it was, it, it was like, so much. I was like, I'm a hundred percent a visionary, not those other things. And it was like, wow, so many, all the, the pains in my business past was because I was having to try to do all these other things. And I'll be like, I'm not good at those things. And I actually don't like those things. Like I hate them. And, you know, like you said, kind of like uh, hate maybe is a strong word, but it was like, I don't like doing those things. And so then I avoid them or I procrastinate and they don't get done, but it's like, I know they need to get done. So super important. And I, I think you've really unlocked something there. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, Two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. You've, I think, maybe graduated beyond buying little four-note little portfolios. So like now talk to me, like what does that involve now that you're buying bigger, you know, and doing bigger amounts of money, you're doing million dollar funds or multi-million dollars and $75 million fund. How has that changed? And what are some of the systems that you've specifically put into place for doing this beyond just the people? Yeah. So great question. And yes, we've graduated a little bit since, um, you know, buying four at a time. Uh, for example, today we just wired about $1.2 million, um, out the door for, um, about 20 assets that we just took down. And 
with growth, it's very interesting because I always caution people, make sure you know you grow smart. You don't want to grow too fast. And we see people, you see it, I'm sure I see it, where people will buy one single family and next thing you know, they go buy a 20 unit apartment complex and uh, you know, 500 miles from them and you know, don't know the property manager. Uh, and what ends up happening sometimes is they grew too quickly. So our growth process was um, something that actually for me, I took too long to do it uh, because I was too stubborn to bring on other people. And uh, that's probably was my downfall a little bit of, I probably could have left my W2 job earlier and scaled much faster, um, but I can look back and nothing I can do about it. But the systems as you grow and putting things in place, having procedures and just ha stream having a system first off is extremely important uh, for anybody. And, you know, we use many different types of software to manage our business. And we actually don't use anybody remote or any VAs um, within our business, which I know a lot of people use and have a lot of success with it. Us, we actually invest more in systems, for example, like software we use, we actually use loan servicing software, even though we don't service our loans, um, because it's more robust, and it probably saves us from bringing on uh, one or two individuals. And the reason why we prefer that is those individuals we bring on um, are positions that typically have high turnover rates. And I'm always focused on efficiency, and making sure people are working and yes, people get trained, but if every six months you have to train somebody new, you know, that's not really an efficient process. So sometimes we look at that analysis of what do we, you know, software versus what we do in-house. And then the next component that I'll just mention about that is, you know, what do you outsource? Now, what certain things are better for you to outsource as a company or as an individual um, versus doing it in-house? Uh, for example, we, one period of time, had uh, somebody working with us that was doing a lot of, you know, the collateral documents that we get, you know, filing those, reviewing them, storing them and recording them. Uh, they actually had a better opportunity that they went and took, but we looked at and said, actually, you know what, let's outsource this to a company um, because looking at things is probably, you know, cost neutral or might actually save us a little bit of money. So let's go down that route because that's what they do all day long. And the only thing they do and this was a unique position of, again, trying to find somebody for unique positions, not easy. Oh, man, what a gr great point on that, because I've seen that both ways, exactly to your point, growing too fast, growing too slow, you know, and it's hard to find that, you know, three little bears, you know, Goldilocks, perfect version of, of the world, because, you know, you just don't know what you don't know. You know, I worked for, um, very successful home builder. He, he had built 10,000 plus homes. He sold his company for hundreds of millions of dollars to Lennar. And then he ran Lennar's land division for a very long time period. And then he kind of exited out and got back and was kind of running his own organization. It was interesting because what you said reminded me of one of the ways of where he would operate is he primarily worked on trying to have outsourced you know, components. And then he would run the math to like, at what scale does it make sense for us to take this in-house? And if that was 100 properties or 200 properties, you know, say for, for instance, on a rental properties, you know, maybe it was. And then it was also like, then you could go negotiate and maybe move that even further out because now you had scale and you'd be like, hey, I got 200. How about you take the 25% or 50% haircut because you're already doing it. And now what it did is it moved that ball even further out because now you have the ability. So what it did is it would reduce the risk of, you know, the operation. It was like one of the things, and again, this is definitely, I've mis done mistakes in this was I was like, I'll just do it myself or we'll, we'll do it ourselves, and we'll self-perform it. And it was just like, that was actually the wrong path again earlier. And it wasn't, I hadn't read that. Gina Wickman thing, I was just like, wait, I actually am not very good at those things. Like, why am I trying to do those other than my own naivety and and you know, just like so I think that understanding your skill sets, you know, you and Lauren and your organization and seeing where the things are lacking, but also like where can you grow, but it doesn't necessarily require you to bring on more people at just, you know, doing it in a smart way. So I wanted to go back to 
you know, some of the things that you talk about as far as like, you know, more nuanced in the note buying, like a lot of servicers don't do a really good job or, you know, some of these loans that got to four years of not paying, how do you do, or what do you get into, you know, write that ship or correct those courses? Is it just, Hey, an attorney's finally sent them a letter or is what is the, the, in the trenches work that you're doing to ultimately exit out of these notes? Yeah. Great question. And kind of hit a little bit of a rewind on it to start a little bit sooner before we, you know, finalize and close that deal. We like to look at each loan and kind of paint a picture of what was going on. Um, you know, we'll look at the person, the predicament, and the property. We call it the three Ps. Property, that's easy. We send somebody to buy the property. Is it run down? Is it in decent condition? You know, we don't get to see the inside of these. So, but typically the outside is usually, if the outside's a mess, then typically the inside will be. The person, you know, we have their information. We can look them up. It's amazing the amount of public information out there. It's actually scary, I should say, about what's out there about people. But we'll look at somebody, okay, if this person's filed bankruptcy five times in the last seven years and it keeps getting thrown out, chances are probably going to file again. And the predicament is probably the most important because we get to see the notes of what caused their predicament. And like, you know, probably anybody who's ever had somebody go through some type of hardship, um, it's one of three things, loss of job, divorce, or death. Um, typically, you know, 90%, you know, or death or I'll say health issues um, because somebody, you know, we've had many people who've had health issues and not have insurance and that's caused some havoc. You know, if it's one of those three, you can typically figure out a way to write the ship. If it's somebody who just doesn't feel like paying because they just don't feel like paying, we, every business has somebody who knows how to, you know, kind of skate or beat that system. Uh, those loans we try and shy away from. So we like to look at the loans where, Okay, the person had a health issue, health issues resolved. Person got divorced, trying to get back on their feet. You know, COVID, people lost their jobs or, you know, whatnot, got back on their feet. So those are the borrowers that we like to try and get the loans for to try and work with them because usually a lot of those borrowers, I'll say, are honest people who are just trying to make a living and they had some bad luck go on in their life. And for us, believe it or not, it's actually more beneficial or all these in terms profitable for us to rework and get a borrower on a payment plan and sell the loan down the line than it is to foreclose on them. Yeah, that makes sense. I have bought, I don't know, 12, 1300 foreclosures across 23 states. And so I, I 100% uh, have heard all the stories when you go in and unfortunately you know, when you have to go through that end of the actual foreclosure and then somebody has to go and knock on the door and be like, you got to get out, like the, the gigs up. And I, I think that was a really good, insightful thing about kind of that predicament that you highlighted job loss, health, divorce. You know, I was like, actually, I think foreclosure causes cancer. And, you know, based on like how many times this came up in the divorce, but versus the scammer, the people that are really trying to manipulate the system and really trying to uh, get one over. And unfortunately, I mean, it's just a numbers game. You're going to run into those people and um, you have no compassion or love loss for them. At least I, I don't, or maybe it's, it's gone by the wayside now, you know, decades later, but I feel bad for the people oftentimes, like you said, that, you know, had an unfortunate circumstance, lost their job, health issues, divorce, these others. You want to try to help them out, but it's again, also sometimes it's like, they don't even help themselves. They're like, we're trying to help you. We want to, you know, you, and I'm assuming, you know, you're like typically like the first, maybe not even the first, the second or third line that, you know, it's gone to by the time you've bought that loan. So like, what are some of the ways that you can help those people reperform or get those loans, you know, back corrected? And then, um, you don't seem like a, a big, the big meanie money guy that's uh, just all out for the money. I mean, we do do these types of things for money, but it's like, how do you work with people? How have been some of your more unique uh, workouts um, on some yeah. loans? And that's a great question. I, before I jump to, I just want to mention, like you mentioned the scammers and stuff. Some of the mistakes that I've made when dealing with those type of people, 
is you let it get too emotional and you're like, I'm not going to let them the win. And they're just taking your time, emotion and stress and equity away from you. And as no matter how much it pains you sometimes, sometimes you have to cut a guy a check or a woman a check for five grand to make the issue go away. And they've been basically playing you for a year. And it's like, I can't believe I have to do this, but some, it's in the best interest sometimes. That was a big learning curve or mistake I made early on. The other is, you know, there's sentimental value and stuff, but it's still a business and you just have to, you know, also manage it like a business, but try and find a way that it can benefit the borrower. And there's sometimes where a predicament happens and that borrower just can't afford that property. And you have to try and be upfront with them. Now they think you're the big bad bank, so they're just going to think you're trying to, you know, tip pull the wool over their eyes, anyways. But you know, that's sometimes you just have to try and get them to accept that. Hey, look, I'm, they make twenty thousand dollars a year now, and their payments a thousand dollars a month. The numbers just don't work. You, um, you know, it's unfortunate. But back to your question of how we try and work with borrowers, because we've bought these loans at a discount. Um, we will typically have the servicer reach out and have them fill out a lot of paperwork and pull credit on them. And one of the things we typically do not ask is how much can you, you know, can you afford this much per month? Because every borrower is going to tell you, of course, if I can keep my house, yes, I will say I can afford that. But the reality is, you know, they haven't budgeted. They haven't looked at the numbers. They're really not sure, but we'll kind of do our own analysis and see what the mortgage payment is. And let's say it's $1,000 a month. We sometimes can go to them and say, hey, look, you're three years behind. You know, if they've gotten back on track, say, hey, can you pay $1,200 a month now or a little more to try and catch up? But in most instances, it's the opposite. Say, hey, you know, you've had a loss of income. We think you can afford $800 a month. If you can afford $800 a month, we'll reamortize the loan, adjust it, and then basically, you know, extend the loan for, you know, an extra two years um, or whatever the case may be to try and work with you. Here's kind of what the ramifications are on that and understand it. And in many instances, that's a win for us because once they start paying and start performing again, you know, we can then turn around and sell that loan back on a secondary market as a reperforming loan at a higher value. Instead of 50 cents on a dollar, it might sell at 80 cents on a dollar. Um, so you have to kind of look at, you know, when you bifurcate like your returns of how much comes in from the gross revenue versus how much on the sale, you know, you want to try and balance it. But a lot of times the big nut, just like in commercial real estate or multifamily is it's on that back end. So that's kind of with the end in mind, the picture we try and paint. So I, I'm going to ask for a little bit of uh, a storytelling from you uh, as far as from a thing. And then we'll jump into a, a handful of kind of questions uh, towards the end and kind of more rapid fires where people can kind of connect up with you. But um, note buyers and finance kind of people always have these like crazy stories. I mean, maybe you, maybe it's not you, but there's like usually like some kind of like crazy story. And, and I'll give you a little bit of an example. There was a guy that did, they did loans. Um, unsecured loans, secured loans, all kinds of crazy things. Private, you know, not necessarily private money, but they had a fund and they were doing this. And they basically they financed purebred dogs, and they were able to get like prime credit borrowers, and they like almost had no default because, and they would pay like twenty five percent interest, you know, equivalent of to buy Fluffy. And it's a lot of these late twenties, early thirty year old women that. Um, you know, maybe that dog became their, their kid. And so they had to structure it so that it looked like they could like foreclose and take fluffy back, but it was like, technically they really couldn't. And so like, it was like, so when I sat down, I was like, that is a crazy story. Like that's super interesting. So I hope that spurred some kind of thought process for you. And it can be your, you know, or someone else, you know, but tell like, what is one of those crazy note buying stories that you've heard within the industry or have you experienced yourself? Yeah. So I've got two for you that I can quickly tell a good and a bad. Um, so, you know, that one I mentioned earlier about how much it pains you I had a loan that was non-performing and the balance on this loan was roughly like caught $30,000 and it was like a $75,000 house. Um, you know, small little Cape style house in, uh, Ohio. And guy was behind. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. 
So, you know, drive by the property and the property looks like it's good condition, end of a cul-de-sac. Um, so finally reach out and stuff and find out borrower actually moved next door because he had a plumbing issue in the house where floor drain in the basement got clogged and basically backed up and there was four feet of water in the basement. So instead of calling Roto-Rooter or anybody else, he's like, ah, I don't know what to do. So he just left it. But literally this house sat was sitting with four feet of water in the basement. We find this out and we're like, okay, um, we you know, need to secure the property. Attorney sends a letter. We find this out. Um, we go and inspect the property. There is mold everywhere in this house. Um, we basically go to pump it. And he, we were trying to get cash for keys, meaning give this guy some money. And he kept rejecting it. So when we go to pump the water out, he would stand at the front yard and call the cops, say, I own this house, get off my property. We couldn't pump the water. Finally, we had to pay him off to let us pump the water. But the other neighbor who was buddies with him worked for the water department. And in front of the property was a, a drain and about 200 feet down the road was another drain. We get a permit and they tell us we have to pump, pump it 200 feet down the road. So we start doing that. The guy at the water worked at the water department calls up, shuts us down, saying we're pumping to the wrong location, finds us because we were pumping to the wrong location, says you should have been pumping to the manhole in front of the property. Now, common sense would prevail. Well, if I could have pumped to the one in front of the property, of course I would have done that because it's cheaper. This guy gave us such a runaround. I want out of spite, I was like wanted to sue this guy and go after him personally and stuff. And at the end of the day, I finally calmed down had to pay the guy cash for keys more than I wanted to um, and end up selling the property to a mold remediation guy to buy it. And I lost probably about 7,500 bucks on the deal. Um, but it was one that I was taking so much time and effort. And this guy just was, you know, so painful um, that, you know, everything we were trying to do, like, you know, we'd always call the cops on us. And, you know, we literally had to get the city attorney involved um, with the police department to allow us into the property. I mean, it was so ludicrous um, what we had to do. So that was one that was just such a nightmare story. Um, the other one, which is kind of the good story, was I had a borrower. Um, so my on my dad's side, all his um, uncles and um, so forth were in the military, and my uncle was actually killed in Vietnam. And we had a borrower who um, was a uh, Vietnam vet, and he had lost his wife. And he had a, this was like a trailer on a 20 acre property in Arizona that he owned with his horse um, on the property. And he had no family or no nothing. And it was one of those where, again, you feel bad. The person couldn't afford the house. And I really didn't want to foreclose on this guy because having a dog is one thing. Having a horse is a little different. Um, you know, it's pretty tough to, you know, walk up to an apartment building with a horse next to you um, and disguise it as a dog. And this guy was so very communicative and he just was very upfront on things. And what we ended up doing with the guy was in most note investors can get very creative in financing. We structured a deal where said, Hey, look, if you deed the property over to me, I'll let you basically have a lifetime lease on the property. Um, cause you know, he's in his roughly probably mid seventies today. Um, and you know, unfortunately he's not in the greatest of health either. Um, I said, I'll give you basically a perpetual lease um, at a dollar per year. It's a land lease because he had the trailer. You can keep your horse and you just pay the taxes on the property. And, you know, basically for me, um, I had bought this loan at a steep discount and I own land that, you know, has gained equity and value. It hasn't really decreased. And I had somebody there to take care of it. And I did a win-win for him of, hey, you can continue to live here for as long as you want. And I got a piece of land that at the time was um, probably worth two times. And now it's probably worth four times what it's worth. Um, and he didn't have family or anyone to give it to anyway. So he's, you know, it was a win-win. So that's kind of one of the little heartwarming stories. That was early on actually um, in my career that I did those two. If you have time for one more, I do have one crazy story that didn't happen to me with a note investor. I, lo I love to hear it. I think these are more important than the, the other things. So yeah, this, this one is in, this one just blows my mind. So uh, somebody I know uh, had closed on a property and uh, I'll just say it was in Maryland. I won't tell exact location, but it wouldn't matter. And went through and evicted the, the borrower after you know, going through the eviction. And this house was a disaster. 
Um, so he went in, renovated the entire house, brought it all because it was in an area that was, um, you know, had a lot of uh, investors fixing up the properties and flipping them or turning in rentals. So he rehabs the entire property. I think he spent over a hundred thousand doing this, gets it listed, a realtor, you know, lists it and stuff. Realtor one day goes to the property, can't get in, calls the owner, says, what's going on? You know, what, you change the locks? No. Basically, um, you know, banging on the door and so forth and so off, looks inside, sees somebody living in the property. Guess who moved back into the property after it was renovated? Former borrower. And this just happened to be like in early 2020. So call the cops and stuff and, um, you know, go to try and start an eviction on this person because the person claimed that it was their property and it's unfortunate some rights that these people have. Cops show up. Woman opens the second floor window, says, I have COVID. You go come and open this door. I'm going to cough on you. <laughs> so, and this is, you know, right, you know, January, you know, February-ish, I think, of 2020. So everybody at that point in time was like, uh, I'm not going in there. Like, hell no. So person ended up staying for almost an extra year where they could finally get this person out because of, you know, all the COVID restrictions and so forth. So it's... This poor investor too, um, this was early on in their deals and so forth. So they didn't have a lot of experience. And this is one of their first experiences with foreclosure. And they had to go through this. And I'm like, man, that is awful, awful to go through. Um, for me, probably the worst is um, that I had was that when I lost her, I've had borrowers the day before foreclosure burn the houses down. Um, they'd light them up on fire and burn them down, thinking that they could get us in spite. But you know, we have insurance on the properties, so we get paid off through the insurance policy. Um, from that standpoint, but they think that, you know, I'm not giving you anything. So I've had three houses um, that have, uh, you know, caught on fire and uh, got burnt to the ground. Yeah, that's crazy. People do crazy things. You know, I've had seen people, there was a big mansion that we did uh, work on. The guy got a tra tractor and pulled up the flagstone driveway put concrete in the drains, jackhammered up the pool, took the big like 20 foot entrance door off, you know, you know, just like people do like, again, just screw the bank, you know, and be like, you took out a mortgage, you're not paying it. Like, not like we didn't know we didn't do anything. It was just like, you didn't agree to pay things. So, um, yeah, that's crazy. I got another one for you. That's probably similar to that one. Former NFL player up in Pennsylvania, small town area, Mother's well-connected politically and so forth. Family owned the entire cul-de-sac, all the lots in the cul-de-sac. 10,000 square foot house on one of the lots. In foreclosure, what's he do? Goes and builds an addition, unpermitted, on the house that crosses the property line. So they go to foreclose on them. They foreclose on him. They go to evict him. He says, you can't evict me. I'm not living on your property. Because <laughs> he built an addition that crossed the property line. The county won't do anything because the mother's politically connected to say, hey, this was an unpermitted structure. And the courts basically, because the mother's connected with the local courts, so they've been trying to move it to federal, but the local courts keep saying, going to the federal courts and basically like, no, this is our jurisdiction. You better not take this. Those persons foreclosed on this 10,000 square foot house. It's been sitting there for five years and the guy's still living in the property and he's claiming he's only living on one side of it, but we know he's living in the entire thing. Nothing they can do with it. That's what I mean about those scammers. So there's a lot of people that are very sophisticated and, and I've actually had some of the biggest issues with attorneys that know how to work the system and stuff like that. So that is very unfortunate. Um, so I, I want to dive into, and just as we're kind of wrapping up, like what are some of the ways in which you can kind of like give me the few action steps that somebody is looking to get into note buying because they want to be a passive investor. Like where would they start? Where would they get in? And obviously, you know, they can make, well, if they're accredited investors, I'm assuming they can invest into your fund, but like, if they're not, you know, they're not necessarily investing into your fund, you know, how would they get into the potential of investing in notes? Um, so actually our fund does allow non-accredited investors. Uh, so we can do accredited and non, we did a regulation A plus offering. So don't get nervous thinking I'm doing a 506B and advertising it. Um, reg A allows for accredited, non-accredited, and actually it's only a $2,500 minimum with our fund. 
Uh, so we have a lot of people who test the waters to see what it's like. And for 2,500 bucks, if they like it, they can continue to uh, invest within our fund. Um, but for people, you know, it's always about education. Um, no matter what you're doing, you need to understand what you're investing in, whether you're you know, playing a little more active role or passive role. Um, that's always the thing I always tell people, and especially with our investors that we have, we try and provide so much content to educate them, to understand, for example, banks are collapsing. You know, we just had another bank collapse and people think, oh, well, you're kind of like a bank. So how does that affect you? Or mortgage rates double, you know, does that impact your business? And for us, because we don't originate loans, you know, that's not an impact. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't impact us. So, you know, the content and the education um, for everybody is important. Some, you know, places to go see, of course, you mentioned we have a podcast um, that we talk about passive investing as well as the early on days, the first 150 episodes were all about node investing. Uh, YouTube, you can find a lot of stuff. Bigger Pockets, um, if people are familiar with Bigger Pockets, another great website for um, to find some information uh, to start, you know, understanding at a high level kind of how the business works. Awesome. I, I love that. Education is uh, a good starting point. Um, uh, unfortunately, that doesn't actually get you there because you can read all you want about push-ups, but until you actually start doing the push-ups, you don't see the results. So you can read lots of books and go things. So I got three rapid fire questions to finish things up. Uh, your answers don't have to be rapid fire, but the first one is what is the best thing that you have spent money on that has given you back the most time? Ooh, great question. Um, F, people taking responsibility away from me and trusting into the people. And I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I think that was actually one of your things. You, you didn't trust the people and then you realize you're like, oh, dang it, I should have done this sooner. Um, what is the book that you have gifted most to other people? Uh, actually, it's traction, okay. you know, for... And again, for people looking to implement processes and procedures and just understand how business runs, because a lot of people have great ideas and do well at one off in something, but to grow it and expand it and think um, you know, outside the box in long term, I think that's a great starting book to understand. I highly recommend that. So, and then the last question is, where can people find you and what is one of the ask? Where, how can the audience here give some value to you? So what is the ask of them um, that they can maybe help you in some way? Yeah, um, well, I had out my basement, um, but uh, <laughs> which is a little inside joke with uh, people I work with. Uh, but, you know, you can find me, um, you know, uh, email me at chris at 7einvestments.com. Uh, we have the Creating Wealth Simplified podcast uh, that we launch and have. And also, I'm very active in a lot of forums on uh, Bigger Pockets. Like I mentioned, uh, that website earlier, I'm not affiliated with them or paid by them. But I think for people looking for um, understanding certain aspects of real estate, I think you can find a lot of information there. Um, you know, my name is, which will be in the show notes, I'm sure, very unique. Um, so it's pretty easy if you Google me and with real estate, um, my name will uh, pop up. Yeah. And, and you're, you're active on Twitter. And I think one of the things too, is that, you know, uh, note buying is not seller financing. I thought that was one of the things that you put out today. I think it even was, is that so many people don't understand what you're doing. And I think it is a tremendous industry. So, uh, I just want to take and close this out is, uh, thank you so much, Chris. It's, it's always great to get to hear from people that have, you know, these niche expertise and especially in something that is not very well known. Um, so I appreciate you, the, appreciate your time and uh, the way that you're educating so many people. And I think that's a great, you know, uh, point that you mentioned earlier, even having that a reggae fund, it's a lot more difficult to put together reggae funds. It's more difficult, more costly and those other things. And so making that accessible to more and more people. So uh, I appreciate you. I'm very, very grateful for this time that I've got to spend with you on this show. And I'm excited for more people to hear about this unless the audio is really terrible. That's an inside <laughs> joke that Chris and I were talking about before the show. So if this episode never comes out, you never hear it. Ah, oh, man, the audio was bad. I do that with air quotes for the people that are listening to it because sometimes you have not good podcast uh, guests. And so, but 
This was a great podcast episode, Chris. Thank you very much and appreciate you. Yep. Thanks, Jake, for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.